If you have your Bible, open up to Acts chapter 17. I hope that you guys are okay with teaching through God's word. I know you show up, and I hope you show up for that very thing. We're going to continue in that same exact pattern that we do going through God's word. We have really an incredible story this morning. We have Paul and his witness before all the Greeks at Athens. It's a famous sermon that he had. You might know or understand the term Mars Hill. It's where it comes from is this section of scripture. Paul just got done with the riot in Thessalonica. He planted a church there. God did an amazing work. Then he went to Berea, a city where people decided to just sit down and search the scriptures. They got on the word, is Jesus Messiah or is he not? That's the question, isn't it? Is Jesus king or is he not? And that's the message that Paul would be preaching. That's the message that we get to preach as believers today. Jesus is king, the one and only who has come. God himself came down to this earth, stepped foot, lived as a man, and he died on a cross for the sake of our sins. That we could be set free. So hey, if you're in Christ this morning, you woke up holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight because of the work of Jesus. And that's something you should get excited about. That's a message worth living for. It's a message worth dying for, as we'll see as Acts continues. And it's a message worth your trouble, <laughs> if I could say it like that. And so I hope that the Lord speaks and inspires you. Even this morning, last week was gospel rhythms. What kind of rhythms do we get in for the sake of the kingdom? that we might be intentional and positioned so that God can use us to share his good news. So we're talking about this morning, but we're gonna add some things to it. Let's pray and then we'll dive in. Lord Jesus, this is your church. These are your people. And this is your word. This is your creation. This is all you. You've revealed yourself to us and we wanna just bow before you even now. We want to recognize you as the king of all kings, that there's no other before you. You are God above, and we want to enjoy sitting underneath the authority of your word, Lord Jesus. You're worthy of it. Move in our hearts, just as you provoked Paul's spirit and moved in him. I pray you would do the very same thing to us this morning, and that through the power of your spirit, we would be moved. And so we trust you, your word. Here it is, God. We, we want to just know it. We want to learn it. We want to find you in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 17. When we get to verse 16, what's happened is you'll notice it says, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, he's arrived at Athens already, and he sent message back to Timothy and Silas. They stayed in Berea. And so those guys are hanging out up there. When Paul got to Athens, the people that escorted him, so to speak, he said, hey, go back and tell those guys to get down here as fast as possible. And so Paul was waiting for them to arrive. But he wasn't sitting around doing a bunch of nothing, was he? He was walking around this city. We'll talk a little bit about what Athens was. And if we had the ability to show you screens, I want you to envision that colorful map I've been showing you of his travels and where he's been. Athens wasn't what it used to be. Probably five, four, five, six hundred years earlier is when it was at kind of the zenith of its influence of the classical Greek time period. Right now it's still kicking hard. Somewhere around 150,000, 200,000 people occupy the city of Athens and then the neighboring Attica. 
But as Paul waits, you'll notice he's doing something. Four things take place, and you'll see a progression. It says his spirit was provoked within him. That's what happened. His spirit became provoked. And the reason why, look what it says. When he saw that the city was given over to idols, it's very specific language, we'll talk about it. The city was given over over to idols, and here's his response. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and then also in the marketplace. And then I want you to take note of the frequency or the commitment that he did it daily with those who happened to be there. (laughs) He didn't care who was there, who wasn't there. Whoever happens to be there, guess what Paul's gonna do? He's gonna preach the gospel. He's gonna try to bear witness to the truth of who Jesus is because he wants to see people set free from their sin. It's a brand new thing he's doing. Okay, so we're gonna break this down. His spirit was provoked within him. What I'm asking you even this morning is to consider and think, and at the end of this, we're gonna pause and the worship crew will come back up. We'll have two songs and just wanna take a moment to ask God, kind of get with your own little groups that you have there and just pray and ask God to move in our hearts to provoke us much like he did here. Like, I want that. I need that. And I want to take time. We'll do that at the very end. His spirit was provoked. What's it mean? It's to make sharp. It's to stimulate, to urge. Think about this. When was the last time your spirit was provoked? Honestly, it could have been like when you were watching the news last night. You're just like, oh my gosh, what is going on in this world today? And you struggle when you watch things. You struggle when you see things happening. And it elicits a response within you. Now, sometimes that response can be a fleshly response, a carnal response. That's not holy. That's not good. And that doesn't lead us to any place that is healthy and for the kingdom. But it can, can't it? When you watch and observe all the things happening in this world today and the brokenness of people, our hearts should yearn and hurt for them. When's the last time you were provoked like this, aroused to anger? Like, how can this be? What is Paul doing? He's just walking around. And his spirit was provoked when he noticed something. A very similar thing happened with Jesus. It was his pattern in many ways. In Matthew 9, 36, it says it like this. But when he, it's Jesus, when he saw the multitudes, Paul was provoked when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Jesus just saw the people. He saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, look at this, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers out into his harvest. Jesus looked out at the multitudes and his heart was moved within him, moved with compassion. He loved them. That's the right response. You guys with me? A a response of love towards people who are probably doing things that you have a very hard time with, but that my heart would be for love for them. To see them set free, to see them come to the knowledge of the truth, that would be a loving response. Paul's provoked and he wants to move on and see them set free. Well, the reason that his heart was provoked or the spirit or him he was provoked within was he saw that the city was given over to idols and 
this idea of Saul is different than even the Saul that Jesus saw there in Matthew. It's a different word altogether. But this is like to behold. It's almost like you're seeing and he's considering. Jesus saw the multitudes and was immediately moved. Well, Paul sees the idol, sorry, all the idols, and he's like pondering within himself, what's going on here? To mentally consider, to view within his mind what's happening. And this idea of given over, in case anybody cares, I thought it was interesting. It's the present perfect tense. It's used to express a past event that has present consequences. And when Paul looked out and saw the condition of the world that he was living in, things that took place in the past were still affecting him today. The religion of the Greeks and all the stuff that was going on, like that was affecting them today. The things that they grew up in, the culture that they were experiencing was affecting the people. Does this sound like today? Hopefully you guys are able to draw some, some similarities. Like this is for us today. That God would speak thinking about those people who, got, who we want to love that are lost. Paul's doing the exact same thing. And the idea or concept of full of, uh, given over to idols is a very specific word that means that the city was like almost literally full of idols. And when you think idol, you're probably thinking a little bitty dude or a statue of some sort. I want to talk and pause just for a moment, if you wouldn't mind, Oh, that sun being gone is nice, isn't it? On what modern day idolatry is. I asked Tracy Gray, our resident counseling expert, what is idolatry today? Here's a definition for it. I want to read it to you. Idolatry is anything that I make more important than pleasing and glorifying and imaging God well. I'll read it again. There's more to it, but let's get this one. Anything that I make more important than pleasing, glorifying, and imaging God. What is it that takes that place in your heart and your life? Consider, let the Lord speak to you as He, as the Spirit would. Three questions that you can ask to determine if something is becoming an idol. You guys ready for this? They're good. Number one, am I willing to sin in order to get this? And if the answer is yes, then you've probably identified something that is an idol. The second one, how do I respond when I don't get this? You want something and it doesn't come your way. What happens? How do you handle it? That anger that rises up or whatever goes on, maybe there's an attachment you have to it that would be like inappropriate. Raise your things we're considering. Allow the Lord to minister to you. He's worthy of number one, isn't he? He's worthy of it all. We sing those songs, but then we, I'm like reading a section here and it's like, man, idols of the heart. And I personally come under conviction of like, I can identify things here. And when I deal with it, what I find is that the Lord does a cleansing work in my own life where I confess it to him. It would encourage you even this morning to do that very thing as I'm teaching through, just identify these things and give them over to the Lord. Allow him to minister to you and serve you and love you and wash you clean. It's what Jesus has done. The third question, do I run to this as a means of refuge or comfort instead of God? So how can I identify if I am experiencing modern day idolatry? There's lots of different things. We're honing in on this for this morning. 
Are you willing to sin to get it? What do you do or how do you respond when you don't get it, whatever it is? And do you run to it as a means of refuge or comfort instead of to God? The idolatry in Athens. Oh, by the way, a good and God-given thing can become an idol, can't it? I can make my family an idol if I am not careful. I can make this an idol. What matters is Jesus being exalted and glorified. He must increase, I must decrease, and whatever it is to that end, Lord, let it be. Idolatry in Athens. Paul faced a challenging, I'm quoting from David Guzik. Paul faced a challenging audience in Athens. It was a cultured, educated city that was proud of its history. It was an intellectual center, much like Oxford or Cambridge. Paul spoke to a city, perhaps different than any other city that he has preached in. This one's unique, Athens. And although Athens had long since lost the political eminence, which was hers in the early day, she continued to represent the highest level of culture attained in classical antiquity. He's in a place that's like pretty, pretty significant. People are listening to him. They know how to argue. We'll get to it in a second, actually. Colossians 3.5, if you'll let me read this, is so powerful. Paul, writing to the church of Colossae, which was over in Asia, not quite where we were in Greece, but over in Asia. He says, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. And notice what he says, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked in them, but no longer. We've been set free. Notice Paul's response. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. This is the exact same reason that we've been dealing with, to dialogue with somebody, to mix thought with thought where you're just talking with them. You're engaging with a person in the conversation, trying to steer it to a place where they might consider who Jesus is. Is he the king or is he not? Is he risen? Is he not? We're navigating those conversations, dialoguing back and forth. So he's just hanging out wherever he can, synagogues, with the Greeks, in the marketplace, wherever there were people, that's where the message went. We again talked about gospel rhythms, and that the Lord would sow into your guys' hearts and into mine as well, living a life consistently of just walking like, like Paul was walking. Wherever you go, opportunities exist to share the Lord with people, to encourage them, to reveal truth to them. He reasoned with them, and then noticed the commitment. That's the way I'm terming it, or how frequent it was. It was just daily. It's what it looks like to be in a gospel rhythm. It's G, like Jesus is worthy of this. Pause for a moment and consider who he is and what he's done. Like we have life right now because of him. Paul seems to have engaged as often as he met with people. I don't know about you guys. I'm just challenged by that. And what I would love to do perhaps is this. If the Lord would allow me to kind of shake up any kind of like religion that you're living in that you wouldn't think for a moment that following Jesus or being a Christian is just coming to church or having a nice time on a Sunday 
or being a part of a home fellowship, those are such important and vital things that we stress so much. But we would understand that following Jesus means we're taking the gospel and the good news and we're making disciples who make disciples. And so sometimes God has to shake us up, doesn't he? Shake us up, stir us, provoke our spirits perhaps that we would hurt for those who are lost and broken. And I'm hoping maybe even this morning that God will move in your hearts. I need it as well, believe me. I don't want to live some like safe religious life. It's too short, the harvest is plentiful. If I could encourage you guys, be shaken up. Consider. All of this began because he was provoked in his spirit. And I hope none of you feel like this is heavy at all. I just want to encourage you. This is what we see in scripture. This is what it means to follow Jesus. We don't need to complicate things. I just want to be ready to be used whenever I have an opportunity. What was his message? Look at verse 18. Certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. That's kind of like the bookends of Greek philosophy. Super stringent. We're going to live life really crazy hard. We're not going to enjoy any pleasures. And then all the way on the other side. The body doesn't matter, so I can do whatever I want with it. What matters is the soul. <clears throat> so they had two different bumpers over there. They encountered him, and some says, what does this babbler want to say? Has anybody ever said that to you? <laughs> what in the world are you talking about, you crazy person? What does this babbler want to say? Others says, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them. Notice what his message was. Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus in the resurrection. This was his message. Many Athenian thinkers or Greek thinkers would have had a hard time with this, and we're going to see that at the very end. I promise we'll get there. The idea of a bodily resurrection was not cool with them. Just so you know, this would have flown right into the face of their culture and their religious upbringing. Just like the gospel's offensive today, in many ways, it's the same then. It would have challenged the way they would have grown up, understanding when they went to their Greek schools. This is not what you're supposed to believe. The body or material things were inherently evil. The spirit was inherently good. And so as a Greek person, you wanted to be rid of your body. Immortality was getting rid of this. And Christian thought, all of these things are corrupted. The world's been corrupted because of sin. But it's gonna be redeemed and remade because of the work of Jesus. Things will go back to God's original design. In fact, in Genesis 1, what did God say about creation? It was very good. Sin has marred it. It's broken it. They had a little bit of a different understanding. And so look at verse 19. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus. And they said, many, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? This is like one of the first times that Paul was not taken violently, by the way. I'm sure he was thrilled about that. Hey, you're bringing to us some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. And then Luke comments here, it's almost funny. For the, all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. He kind of nails them on their conduct. All these guys ever do is sit around and talk about a bunch of stuff. They don't do anything, is what Luke's trying to say. But they hear like a, a new thing. Paul has an opportunity. 
Again, you might know the Areopagus as Mars Hill. Eros was, or Ares was the Greek god of war, and then Pagas is like a, an acre or like a place. Mars was the Roman god of war and hill. So Mars Hill or Areopagus, right? Areopagus. It's, it's a big old piece of rock in Greek, in Athens. It's there to this very day, you can go see it. There's a big plaque, you know, where you can go pay money to see where Paul maybe said something if you wanted to. It's there to this very day. Paul begins to speak. And notice in verse 22, he begins a message. And we'll go pretty quickly through this. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Something to maybe consider. He starts off by being what we would maybe call nice. (laughs) And in engaging people, as you're led by the Spirit, Sometimes it can be wise to ask for permission before you criticize someone. I believe what Paul's doing is he's bringing points of affirmation. He's connecting two things in appreciation, building bridges. Now, some people might say, well, listen, you got to preach the truth. And to that, I would say, amen. I think there might be wisdom in what Paul's doing. We'll see. You guys be led by the Spirit and what to say. There might be wisdom in connecting things and being appreciative. He just says, man, you guys are really religious. You guys believe some stuff. <laughs> you, can just, you can agree with that. We believe things, don't we? <laughs> Whatever it might be. Trying to get their attention. Pulling them in. How do I get them to desire or want to hear more about the Lord? Because here's what's up. The gospel will offend. And the Holy Spirit will convict You just get to speak. Let the gospel offend and let the spirit speak. I see that you are all pretty religious. Verse 23 through 25, let's look at it. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Hey, just so you know, consider this. Paul's outside, he's talking to a bunch of people, and at this point in time, it's very likely that he had their heads nodding. Like, this isn't particularly all that unusual, There would have been points of agreement that they could have had. He's going to get to where they won't agree with him. But their heads would have been nodding. Okay, we see that. Verse 26, when he, and notice it says, he has made from one blood every nation of men who dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Interestingly enough, not far might have sounded strange. Mount Olympus was that back up towards Thessalonica. 260 miles north of Athens is where the Mount Olympus was. That's where the Greek gods lived. With Paul, though, what do you have? With Jesus, what happens? He comes and he lives within. He can't get any closer. And Paul's just trying to say, you guys, he's not far. If you would but ask, he's right there. If you would but seek, there's Jesus. 
Knock and he'll open up the door, man. He's right there. The God of the universe, like he said, who created all things. He's not 260 miles away on a mountain somewhere. He's right here. He's with you. He's in Paul. But we believe that the Holy Spirit draws people to himself prior to salvation. That God was with people drawing and wooing them to him. God was much closer than they could even imagine if they would just but ask, right? In him, we live and move and have our being. He's not far from much of us, but in him, there's a general affirmation that we're all dependent upon God is where Paul's going. And we're his offspring. In theology, there is a particular sense in which each person is the offspring of God and that we are his creation, To be his son or his daughter is a matter of whether or not you're going to follow Jesus or not, though. And so you have some acknowledging here where they can nod and shake their heads. And you'll notice we get to verse 29. He says, therefore, since we're the offspring of God, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. And here he kind of offers maybe like a real little critique right there. He says, just so you know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. He's built some bridges. He's going to kind of dive into who God is. And he says, truly, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but listen, right now he commands all men everywhere to repent, to change their mind, the way they think about Jesus. In Acts chapter 19, he's going to cause what is referred to as the Ephesian uproar. And during that time, all of the idol workers, all the silversmiths, the people that made the idols, they went out of business because everybody got saved. And no one started, no one was worshiping idols any longer. And these people got so upset that they caused an uproar and they grabbed Paul and drug him into the city and they all were chanting for like two hours, great is the goddess Diana of the Ephesians. For this very statement over here at Athens, In Ephesus, he's going to get it. It was offensive. It was different than what they believed again. But he goes to verse 30. God now commands, he said, he's proclaimed, all men everywhere repent. 2 Peter 3.9 says it like this. It says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us. Isn't that good news? That God's long-suffering toward you? Well, why is he long-suffering toward us? Check it out. I'll tell you right now. Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so he waits. Jesus hasn't come back yet. The end hasn't begun. Why? Because he's a patient God who loves you. And for those of you who are in Christ, Man, there's a world out there that he's being patient for. And I want to be used. In these last days, Lord, here we are, use us. We've got work to do. But we get to verse 31, and we're so close. Are you guys seeing this? There's only like three more verses left. Because he has appointed a day, and I love this. Try to connect these things. God is crying out to a world, repent, come back to me. Your sin and rebellion has pushed you far from me, but I've made a way for you to come back. It's through Jesus. And God is crying out to people. Every sunset, 
is an evidence of his glory that would draw people to him. Your guys' way of living, your gospel rhythms in mire, when you get gas, when you go to work, is God reaching out to a lost and broken world saying, I've made a way. Turn to me. Why is God doing that though? Because notice what it says, he's appointed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. That's Jesus. And he's given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. Here's the story, guys. Paul is saying God has commanded, he longs and desires that people would repent because there's gonna come a day where judgment comes. And unless you repent and turn to Jesus, you'll experience separation eternally from God in hell. And that's the message Paul's preaching. But God is so good and so kind, isn't he? That he would offer this chance of salvation. Hey, you guys carry this into the world, don't you? The same heart that God has, 2 Corinthians 5 explains it because you've been redeemed and made a new creation. You now have the incredible privilege to go and be an ambassador for Christ. That's what we get to do. It's what Paul's doing here. That appointed day. This is true, and Paul's trying to explain Jesus rose from the dead. That was what made all these other things count. I'm going to listen to the one who's risen from the dead. He has authority. <laughs> Verse 32, notice how that was taken, though. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, well, you, we'll hear you later on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. It didn't go super great. In fact, I think that his sermon was honestly cut short. That's not a long sermon, right? That was like maybe five, probably just about two minutes of dialogue of him just sharing. And when he talked about resurrection, they said, nah, we're done. We don't do that resurrection thing. They mocked him. Jews request a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Greeks. What was it? It was foolishness. Hey, but to those who are called Jew and Greek, here we are. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's who he is, because the foolishness of God is wiser than man. The weakness of God is stronger than men. The fruit of this was not so great. Can I encourage you with this? That's okay. Paul was in Athens for quite some time, walking around. His spirit was provoked within him. He was broken because of all that was going on. Just like God break our hearts. We're going to pause and pray about that. In fact, worship team, go ahead and come up. I have two more things. One of them is interesting, but, but come up, please. Paul was there, loving the people, had a desire to see them know Jesus. The gospel was shared. He got to the resurrection, and they said, nah, we don't do that. Some of them did, though. This guy named Dionysi starts following Paul. He's a believer in Jesus Christ, and in the, it says he was an Arapagite. He was actually a member of the court that was there on Mars Hill. Would have held an influential spot there. His name, though, check it out. The fruit that God gave him was this. His name, Dionysus, means devoted to Bacchus. Now, that's kind of the equivalent of, well, Bacchus was a really crazy god that they would worship. I can't even go into all that the worship was like because it's really inappropriate. And so this guy stands up. He's like, Paul, I'm going to follow you. I believe in Jesus. And it's this guy who's devoted to Bacchus. And Paul's like, okay. But the blood of Jesus takes care of that, doesn't it? 
How cool is that? Even a dude whose name means devoted to some crazy wild God, even he can be saved. And then Damaris. And if you look up in Strong's, Damaris, it was a lady and her name means a heifer. (laughs) Paul got a guy who's devoted to another God and a heifer. (laughs) But listen, it's okay because from this right here, a church was planted and people started following Jesus and a bunch of people got saved. And for, from this point until today, there are Christians in Athens because a dude was provoked in his spirit and did something about it. He wouldn't just be quiet and sit still. He did something. He shared a message. He cared enough. It all goes back to his spirit was provoked within him. So he had to say something. He reasoned wherever he could and as often as he could. Just allow that to sink in for a second. What I'm going to do now is just turn it over to Ed. They're going to play two more songs, and we're just going to pray. You're out scattered about. My encouragement, if you'd like to, gather with each other. Get in little groups and just ask God to provoke your spirit. Ask him to move you. I don't know when the last time it is you asked that God would break your heart for those who are lost, but this morning would be a really good time to do it, I think. And so if I could encourage you, we'll do a song and then we can do the last song and sing and and then I'll come back up for a couple instructions and then we'll get out of here. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, lead us and guide us. You said that we were supposed to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers out. That's what we're doing right now. We're gonna actually pause and do that. We're going to pray. Lord, would you send them out? Minister to us now as we just take time and to consider you. Move on our hearts, Holy Spirit. Provoke us to action that it would be a move of your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of it all. Bless this time now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.